You may be seated. Before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's holy infallible word, let us approach the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, we just want to realign our lives back to your word. We pray that the preaching and the teaching of your word transforms us to your beloved son's image. Lord, we just pray that we slow down and focus what you teach us here in Mark chapter 9. Your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have the copy copy of the Lord's uh, word, please turn to Mark chapter 9. Mainly, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. And it's the story, it's the passage on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's a beautiful story. The first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. Now hear the infallible preserve an errant word of God. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such no laundryer on earth could make them white. And Elijah appeared to, uh, to them with Moses, and they were speaking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us make, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Let's go down verse 11 real quick. As they were coming down the mountain, they say this. They asked Jesus, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and to be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wish, as is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. About four years ago, I had the pleasure of attending a youth group trip to Colorado. And, and the mountains of Colorado, if you've ever been, is so majestic. It's so beautiful. It makes our tallest skyscrapers that we could ever make look like dwarfs to them. We stayed at this place called Estes Park, um, and it's surrounded by these majestic peaks. It was a great time. Me and one of the other youth leaders decided to take one of the middle schoolers or the middle schoolers up on uh, one of these one of the climbs up to one of the peaks. And this hike wasn't easy. All right, I hate to say this. I was struggling to climb up this little, not little, but this peak, right, with these middle schoolers. And as a former Marine and also now a paratrooper, I'm very prideful about my physical fitness, right? And I, I felt like I was about to fall out. And if I was feeling like that, guaranteed one of these middle, or not 
one, but several of these middle schoolers were struggling climbing up this mountain. But when we made it to the summit, to the peak, what was up there blew us all away. We weren't ready to see what we saw on top of this mountain. It was early in the morning. The sun was, you know, coming up at that moment. And what we saw was just breathtaking. As we made it, made to the summit, we saw God's beauty and majesty revealed to us in the book of nature that was so beautiful that even though we're on the top of the mountain, the beauty and the glory of the Lord floored us. And that's what we have in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 9. We see at the top of this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, the glorious, glorious majesty of our Lord shining so bright that floored the disciples. Just as I stood on that mountain in Colorado that blew me away with the uh, beauty below, so too is this chapter of Mark chapter 9 because it reveals the glory, the beauty of God's highest revelation. If, if you know your you know, gospel of Mark well, which I know you do because Pastor Andy says he has scholars in here. He says this, or he told me that you, know, you guys are all scholars and we all know chapters one through eight really focuses on Jesus's ministry his, his parables, his teachings, his healings. We could go through the first eight chapters. We see how Jesus healed the woman with the issue of the blood or the daughter that died in the same passage or the teachings of the parables like the mustard seed or the fact that, that a demonic possessed man cries out and says that he is the son of God during, during a synagogue service. That's the first eight chapters. Then after chapter 9, everything switches and focuses down on the descent towards the cross, the crucifixion of our Lord. But here in chapter 9 is the peak of Mark's gospel, the very point to which Mark wants us to hear this morning, which is God's revelation. And what we see here in Mark chapter 9 is no eye nor mind could ever conceive of. I'm sure you're like me. When you read this passage, you're just blown away with, with this message. How can this mere man, if he was a mere man, right, if you were looking at a more critical, uh, critical lens, could transform before the eyes of the disciples? That's the point. He's not just a man, but he is God in flesh. And here we have a moment of Christ's glorification but also God the Father's declaration to the disciples, and namely also to us, that is summed up in two words, only Jesus. And that's the main point to this passage, the peak of Mark's gospel, only Jesus. And that's why I titled this sermon that two words, only Jesus, because God's revelation points all to Jesus is only Jesus Christ that we find in the Old Testament, that all the types and shadows of the temple, temple, everything that we read about in First and Second Kings points to the coming Messiah, and we see that pinnacle of God's revelation in the Gospels pointing to only Jesus. And that is what I want you to learn from, from me this morning, that if there's anything else you get from me at all, is that Chaplain Bond talked about only Jesus because, frankly, there's nothing worth talking about except only Jesus in this life. And, beloved, you may be struggling in your life right now, 
we've heard so many prayers about what we are going through or what our friends and family members are going through. You may be struggling there. Better yet, you may be struggling with sin in your life even now. Or better yet, because you guys are all scholars, you guys are probably wrestling with some passages or doctrines of Scripture and you don't know what to do. Let me reassure you, friends. There's only one person to go to, and that is Jesus only. And that is the point of God's revelation to us. It all points to his only begotten son, the one who loved us and died for us on that cross. I want to uh, 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 divide our passage this morning in three different sections. The first section is verse 1, and how Jesus is continuing his uh, message to the disciples and also to the crowd, saying that there will be some here, standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. The second, uh, uh, second part, we get a glimpse of God's kingdom and power from verses 2 through 8 with the glory cloud, with Moses and Elijah showing up, the, the transfiguration of Christ, and also God's, God the Father's word to the disciples. I like to call this the, you know, the doxa apocalyptic, or glory unveiling revelation of God to the disciples, and namely also to us. And third uh, part, we have the disciples' last question, or questions for clarification to Christ about God's kingdom. And their questions actually presuppose that they actually saw God's kingdom come with power and with might. Without further ado, let's dive in on our first point, point one. Some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We see that in verse one. If you look at verse one, this is what Jesus is saying. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And notice, notice this passage in the last part of chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, is Jesus' discourse about picking up your cross and following me. Then he adds this at the end of that passage, or that discourse, that there will be some who will not taste death standing here till they see the kingdom of God come. And what I love about that little discourse that he shares with them, he, we all know this passage, pick up your cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. Beloved, we all know what the cross represented in the first century. as a public execution. It's a public execution against the Roman government. Whoever had a cross, you could guarantee, if you saw them carrying a cross, guaranteed that they will be dead by this evening. It was a horrific, horrible death people experience. It was gruesome, very inhumane. And Jesus is telling the disciples, the, the crowds, if you want to follow me, if you want to be worthy of my disciples, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And just think about that for a second, beloved. Jesus is speaking to Jews here in the crowds and to the disciples. To be publicly put to shame, publicly exposed on that Roman cross is to show your shame. To be crucified was to die on a tree that pointed to someone being cursed by God. Not just that, it shows how unclean they are because... What ate people who were crucified? 
unclean birds of the air, vultures and ravens. So for the Jewish audience seeing or hearing Christ and picturing that cross, they're saying, wait a second, Christ, if we want to live for you and save our lives, we have to live in a life where we are treated unclean and actually physically die? How does that save our lives? They were pondering that, probably questioning that, and the disciples, I'm sure they didn't comprehend it either because if I were in their sandals, I'll be like, Jesus, what are you talking about? This doesn't make sense. How can one save their life if they're dead on the cross? Then he says this in Mark chapter 9, that some here will see the kingdom of heaven before they taste death. Oh, that's such a beautiful message, beloved. Christians have to live for Christ. And that's the message at the end of Mark 8, beginning of Mark 9. We have to, it's all for Christ or it's not at all for Christ. And that, that is what Christ is saying to the disciples. And that's the junction for our lives today. It's either all of Christ in all areas of life or not at all for Christ. You see that? And that's what he is saying here to them at the end of Mark 8, beginning of Mark 9. Because if you truly want to be called a disciple of Christ, you have to live for, for him and him alone. But once we live for him, we have that promised hope of seeing the kingdom. I love what Paul says. He says this in, in uh, Galatians 2.20. Why do we live for Christ? Well, the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, Christ died for us. Every vile thing that we've done, every wicked act that we have, just by our sin nature from the, what we inherited from Adam, Christ took that on that cross, that shameful public execution, and all that beautiful righteousness and majesty of Christ the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is transferred onto us. And that's why he says that there will be some here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And beloved, I think seeing the current events around us all around the world, doesn't matter if it's in the Middle East or here at home or in Europe or Asia or Africa, South America, it doesn't matter. I think that's the promise we need to hear now that we will taste the kingdom of God by our faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. Question one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? The answer, that with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me. Beloved, let me tell you something. You have tasted the kingdom of God. You have tasted the kingdom of God and you experience it every Sunday through the ordinary means of preaching the gospel. You get to actually, as Thomas Watson says, you hear God's word, his voice through his word, but also you get to experience God's kiss through the sacraments. We get to see God's glory, his kingdom every Sunday. Though we are not like the disciples who will physically see it in our passage, we see it spiritually, and we live in it, and we walk in it every day. If we were to move back the veil that separates this physical world from the spiritual world, we will see the angels and the archangels around us praising God now. 
So when we enter worship, we enter with the entire church, both church militant, the church today, that's still alive, and the tribal church. As Hebrews 12 says that we have a great cloud of witnesses, so too are we and the witnesses together glorifying God and enjoy him forever. And beloved, if you're in Christ, you have that promise. But for those who are not in Christ, or for those who are doubting their salvation, and you think you're not in Christ, which come and talk to me afterwards. But those who are not in Christ, you don't have that promise. But Christ says to you this morning that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as, as the scriptures has said, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, beloved, if you're in Christ, you have tasted the kingdom of God. You have heard the God's voice, the God, the King, the creator of all things, and you're in that glorious, majestic kingdom now. And nothing in this life, the power of hell, the devil, and his minions, our flesh, our sin, cannot separate us from the love of God. But going back to our passage, we know that Christ is speaking directly to his disciples. We know that he's actually just speaking to Peter, James, and John. Though at the end of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9, he is talking to everyone. He's applying it to his first three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we know all three of these men. They're the pillars of the church, the early church. They're bold ministers of God's uh, gospel. You know, Peter, a day of Pentecost, he stood bold on that day we always see him doing bold things kind of speaking out of place and that's kind of the story of my life always speaking out of place or the wrong thing to to be said at the wrong time and peter does that a lot but in acts chapter 2 in the first 16 chapters of acts peter is a bold man of god standing firm on god's word we know about james and how he is like really the the coordinator of the early church the church in Jerusalem, he is the man who stood firm for the truth, but he did it in a quiet way, unlike Peter. And then John, the beloved apostle, John, he is just this amazing man who wrote amazing things. The Gospel of John, the first and second uh, and third epistles of John, and also the Revelation. But we all know their ending. Peter and James were martyred for the gospel. Peter, uh, the tradition says, church tradition says, was crucified upside down. So he literally picked up his cross and followed Christ and died upside down. James was the first martyr of the church, the first disciple, I mean, of the church. And he was beheaded for the gospel's sake. John didn't die from a gruesome death, even though he was tortured a lot. He died from old age. And all three of these men tasted and saw the kingdom of God come in, in power. And that's our second point, uh, verses 2 through 8. God, the kingdom of God in power. Now let's look at verse 2. It says this, after six days. Hmm, a little side note about creation week right there. After six days, what's, the, what's after six days? The seventh day. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. <laughs> Beloved, as you know, mountains are very important in Scripture. They argue that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. The scholars argue that. And if that's true, then you know God was in the presence of Adam and Eve on that mountain. But if that's not explicit enough, what happens after the Noah's Ark story? 
the ark rested what on a mountain, a mountain or Mount Eret. Uh, Abraham sacrifices was tested to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain. Uh, the the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Elijah flees to Mount Horeb. The greatest sermon ever preached was the sermon on the mount or mountain. And likewise, we have the transfiguration here. So namely, if you look at mountains as a theme in the Bible, we see that it's God's dwelling place, a meeting place of God and man. And this is what we have here in Mark chapter 9, a dwelling place of God meeting with man, the three disciples. I love this because it's, it's kind of the foretaste of Isaiah 2. If you go back and read it later today, Isaiah 2 talks about in the latter days, nations will stream up. Imagine that nations will stream up to the mountain of the Lord, going up to Mount Zion. And here we see on this mountain, God transfigured. But look at the last part of verse 2 with me. It says this, Christ, he was transfigured before them. What does it mean to be transfigured? It's kind of an odd word, right? We don't really use that word except for, you know, that guy was transfigured after boxing Mayweather, right? It's something physically happens to someone instantly. Well, the word transfigure is where we get the Greek word, or the, from the Greek, the English word metamorphosis, right? So Christ metamorphosed or changed or transfigured in a twinkling of an eye before the disciples, he went from his state, his, his state of humility to that of his glorified state before them. This kind of begs the question, how did Christ look? What did he look like to them? Now, I'm not saying picture this and images of Christ. No bueno, don't go there with me. All right, we'll talk about that later. But Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of, of a bondservant, of a slave, and coming in the likeness of man. And we see that changing. Christ changed from that likeness of no reputation, that of a slave, to that of his glorified royal state of what he has in glory from God the Father. We see that actually in verse 3, if you look there, even his clothes change. So Christ physically changed from his state or a state of humility as a servant or as a slave, but even the clothes to which he was wearing as a slave was changed from that to his royal majestic clothes that he has from the Father I love what, what Mark says. If you look at the last part of verse chapter three, or verse three, of course, chapter nine, I don't know why I'm repeating myself. He says this, that his clothes changed exceedingly white like snow, such that no launderer on earth could whiten them. I love that. I love that about Mark's description because he is describing not only Jesus's physical you know, appearance change, but even his clothes change. But if you don't mind, turn to uh, Matthew 17 as a, a reference. This is uh, Matthew's version of the transfiguration. I, I love this. And if you guys get time, you put the transfiguration passages next to each other. You'll see a lot of similarities, but also some variations. Luke 9 is the other passage as well. But Matthew 17, verse 2 says this. Jesus was transfigured before them, the disciples, 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as snow. Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of Christ. Not only did he change physically, and, and his attire changed from that of a slave, but to that of a king, but his face was shining bright like the sun. Just like the day when I was standing on top of that mountain in Colorado, seeing the great rays of the light shining through the clouds, the, through the cumulus clouds that's just breathtaking in itself, shining bright on certain parts of the valley, illuminating it. Now we see Christ's face shining so bright, illuminating the souls and the minds and the hearts of the disciples. This harkens us back to Exodus 34, if you remember. When Moses was finished with meeting with God in the tabernacle face-to-face, God spoke to him face-to-face like a friend speaks to a friend, that when Moses walked out of the tabernacle, his face shined. It actually frightened, frightened all of Israel. What does Moses do? He puts a veil over his face. But here in this passage, we see Christ's face truly unveil before the disciples, shining so bright and beaming into their lives. And that's, that's why I think in verse 6, they were greatly afraid. This is before that cloud came over them. The disciples were greatly afraid, seeing Christ as he is. All glorious, all beautiful, all majestic, changed in a twinkling of eye, and he's shining so bright. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 9, when he talks about Jesus' appearance, it says that his face, as Jesus prayed, his appearance of his face was altered. So you see that Mark focuses on the outward appearance of the clothes. We see that Matthew focuses on the face, but Luke focuses on Jesus' prayer life and how he was changed before that, before their eyes. Oh, the beauty of God the word of God, the incarnate word itself shining so bright here in our passage. But what's really remarkable is it throws me off. And I look, at, it's in verse four. Look there for a second. We have Peter, James, and John with Christ on this mountain. Jesus transforms before them. And according to Matthew, his face is shining. And already you're like, what is going on? If I was either one of those disciples, I'm holding on to one of them. Like, what is happening right now? If they're like, Peter's here and James here, if I'm John, because I want to be called the beloved, I'd be holding on to them. Or if they're off to the side, I'm hugging one of them. Like, brother, what are we witnessing? Then all of, out of nowhere, Elijah and Moses appears. Beloved, I love Moses. I think he's one of the most important figures of the Old Testament, except for God and Abraham, right? And Moses, you remember the day after, after Israel portrayed God and sacrificed what they should have and erected a golden calf, and God said, you know what? I'll send my angel with you guys to go in the land, but I will not go with you. We remember what Moses did, right? He stood between Israel and and God as that great mediator, saying, God, we cannot go in that land. It doesn't matter if you send an angel with us. We cannot go unless your presence is with me. And God's like, yes, I'll do it for the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a bold statement and bold move from Moses. Then Moses does something even more grand than that. He asked God, Show me your glory. We know the story. God's like, you cannot see my face and live. You will die. You can't see the front side of my glory, in other words. I'll hide you in the rock, and when, when I pass by, 
I'll lift up my hand so you can see the backside of my glory. And Moses was blessed from that scene. But beloved, in our passage, if you look at it, Jesus is standing there unveiled before Moses, shining so bright. And now Moses is seeing the full glory of God in Christ Jesus. That is what he wanted to see on that mountain back in Exodus. Now he sees it here in the Gospel of Mark. And the other person we have is Elijah. Elijah, from my studies, and someone could correct me if I'm wrong because you guys are scholars like Pastor Andy has uh, told me, Elijah never, never asked for God's glory. He was just a faithful man who, who preached repentance to Israel during the, 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 the division, during the great apostasy in Israel. We know his story. I know Pastor Andy's been going through First Kings with you uh, before he went to Uganda. First Kings 19, we see Ahab and Jezebel just running the muck and just doing evil things to Israel and to the people there. And God calls Elijah to be a covenant prosecutor to remind Israel that they are breaking God's covenant and law and it's calling them to repentance. Well, we know the story. He gets afraid. He flees to Mount Horeb. He wants to meet with God and he hides in a cave. We know the story. Everyone knows the story because Pastor Andy went through it like two months ago. It's still fresh in your mind, right? <laughs> Elijah experiences God in that cave through a still, small whisper. Through that still, small whisper. And God tells him, get up and go back and preach repentance. What are you doing in this cave, right? Now in our passage, we see Elijah actually meeting face to face that small, still whispered in the incarnate word of God. But if you're like me, you're wondering, what is going on here? Why does Moses and Elijah show up? You know, are they dead? No, God calls them back for the disciples' benefits. Look, look with me. He calls them, and then, you know, Peter's like, what do we do? Do we build these tabernacles for a continual revelation? Beloved, the idea for this passage is this. Moses and Elijah did physically show up for Peter, James, and John, but they stand as witnesses and representatives of the Old Testament, of the law and prophets, right? So what they are witnessing, Peter, James, and John, what they are witnessing is everything that Moses and Elijah testified in the law and the prophets for them. So check this out. So Peter, James, and John are the first eyewitnesses of God's uh, kingdom and power and they see it in Christ Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah, the representatives of God's revelation, is confirming what they are witnessing. This is that divine doxa apocalyptic or glory unveiling of God's final revelation. And beloved, if the story just ended here, if the, the chapter ends and the gospel ends, this is enough for us. This is enough for us to be uh, Christians, to look to Christ, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. As Peter is uh, talking to Jesus in verse 5, talking about building tabernacles, about keeping them there so they could have continual revelation, we see in verse 7 the pinnacle of this entire chapter, and yes, the entire book, Read with me what it says. A cloud came and overshadowed them. Stop right there. Well, Peter's talking about building tents. 
this cloud comes and overshadows them. I love what Matthew says in his description. A bright cloud comes and overshadows them. Luke records that the disciples entered into this cloud. This cloud represents God's full glory, God's full presence. We understand that in Exodus, how God led Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you want, write this down and look at it later. First Kings 8, when Solomon finished building the temple, he brings in the Ark of the Covenant. What happens? The glory cloud, the full presence of God falls down in that place. And it says that it was so thick, it was so heavy, God's glory, that cloud was so heavy that the priest could not continue to minister because of the cloud, because of the glory of God in that, tab- or in that temple. I love this because we see God's full presence, his kavod, the heaviness or weightiness of God's glory on this mountain at the transfiguration for the highest revelation, the doxa apocalyptic, the glory unveiling revelation to the disciples. And this is greater than anything they've ever read about in the Old Testament. And we get some of the most beautiful words God the Father has ever spoken. What does he say? A voice came out, says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Stop right there. This is God the Father. He is saying to the disciples, this is my beloved son, hear him. God is pointing to the highest revelation of himself, saying, you listen to God the Son. The highest revelation of God is God himself, and he's revealing it in his son. This is what Paul says in Hebrews. Yes, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. He says this in verse 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Then he goes on and says this. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Beloved, God's final revelation is found in God the Son, the only begotten Son, the glorious incarnate Word of God. And this is what John tells us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what does the Son tell us to do? He says, repent, put your faith and trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Beloved, are we doing that today? Are we running to Christ and only to Christ and hearing and listening to him for our guidance and salvation? We may know some people are wrestling with that. They may not be in this building today or better yet. It might be friends and family members elsewhere who are wrestling with their salvation. Are we helping them to hear Christ today? That is the highest revelation. And you will not have your highest joy, your highest good in life if you are not listening to the Son of God. God the Father says to us, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. This comes to our last and final point. Really, verses 11 through 13, we see that the disciples are descending down from the mountain And they're applying, I love this, they're applying what God the Father just told them. They're like, yes, Lord, we're going to listen to your son. Hey, Jesus, we got a question for you real quick. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? 
That, that question kind of presupposes that they experienced the kingdom of God in power. But yet, they didn't see Elijah. We didn't, they didn't see that grand minister, the grand prophet of God to make things all new. And this is based off of Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send before you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great day, dreadful day of the Lord. So they were asking Christ for some clarification of that passage. If the kingdom of God is to come after Elijah inaugurates it, how is that true when we haven't seen Elijah yet? They're asking it like in a Minnesota nice way, as my wife would like to say. You know, very polite, but very direct at the same time. Um, and Jesus' answer is plain to them. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you, Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wish, as is written of him. Mark doesn't tell us, but if you go back to Matthew 17, Matthew says, The disciples understood this to be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he was a prophet of God. As Jesus says, he was the greatest one, uh, greatest one born of woman, right? He, according to God, had the power and the spirit of Elijah, Luke chapter 1, to preach repentance. And that's what he did. And he was killed for it. The disciples are right. Elijah must come first. And Jesus acknowledges that. But he also explains to them that he has already come in John the Baptist. See, their expectation about the kingdom, what they physically or thought with their imagination, wasn't met. But spiritually, it was already met. Just like how we experience God's kingdom every Sunday, we may not think this is God's kingdom, but it is. This is a glorious kingdom, and you, my dear brothers and sisters, are in it now. I just got one application, really. It's going back to verse 7. This is my beloved son. Hear him. How do we know the son? How do we understand who Christ is? Simply, he opened us up. You read this word every day. Meditate on it day and night so that we may be careful to observe everything the Lord has revealed to us. Better yet, when we pray, let's pray these words. I love the Trinity Psalter hymnal because we sing God's words through the Psalms. And beloved, let us teach our children that. For those who have families, do not neglect family worship. That is vital. Our children will hear and see, taste, feel the word of God at a very young age. And this word will not return void. So the more you learn the word of God, the more you will know God the word. The more you read your Bible, the more you will hear the voice of the son of God who loved you and died for you. And beloved, there's nothing more joyful than me to see brothers and sisters coming together to open up the word and dig for that truth because more you dig the more you will find the gold of God here for those who are not in Christ let me challenge you something open up this word turn to the gospel of John and read it grab one of these brothers and sisters to help you understand some things and, and really realize who you are before God. Because just like the disciples who are undeserving, wretched, vile sinners, undeserving to receive that beautiful 
sight of the kingdom of God and power, likewise you are too, undeserving of anything, undeserving technically of the very breath in your lungs because your continual hatred of God, rebelling against him. I pray that you repent, and if that's you, come and talk to me this day. If you are doubting your salvation, beloved, where else would you run to to have a confirmation of your salvation? The word of God. Run to it. Flee from this world and all the distractions. If you are thinking you are struggling in your faith, run to the Gospel of John or the Epistle to the Galatians. Or better yet, if you are afflicted from pain and suffering, whether if it's health or physical pain from your work or life, read the, uh, the, the Epistle to the Philippians for your comfort. Because Paul was physically suffering there. He was actually chained and imprisoned. And there might be some in here who are just, you know what? That's great for Peter, James, and John. They have that assurance of seeing the kingdom of God. I'm here in 2023. All I see is death and despair and misery all around me. And government being very corrupt. And that's putting it lightly and politely. This is what Peter says. And by the way, the transfiguration is recorded in four different places. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Peter's second epistle, he says this, talking about being on that mountain. We receive honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that was born by him, by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is what Peter says. We ourselves heard this very voice and born from heaven, for we were with Christ on, on that holy mountain. Then he says this, and I'm reading from the ESV. I love what it says. This is what Peter says to us. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. I get it. I wish I was with Peter, James, and John on that mountain. I wish I saw Lazarus raised from the dead or Jesus walking on the water or just to hear Christ say, blessed are those who are broken in spirit. But we have something more sure than those, those events in history. We have God's inspired word for us. Let us dwell on this word day and night, so that we may know Christ, so that we may know how to glorify and enjoy him forever. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I just pray that we may be moved to live for you and holy for you. Let us be transformed by your word, and let's live by that so that we may hear your son's voice.